0: Everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zhao, and today I sit down with Chi Chi Wu, attorney for the National Consumer Law Center. Chi Chi is a Harvard Law grad who has been fighting for consumer protections in Massachusetts, Washington, DC, and around the country, with a main focus on credit reporting, credit bureaus, and medical debt. She's also written the legal manual titled Fair Credit Reporting and has authored books including Consumer Credit Regulation and Truth in Lending. In today's episode, Chi-Chi walks us through the Fair Credit Reporting Act, the Big Three Credit Bureaus, what's broken, and how we can fix it. Chi-Chi's work is crucial to the everyday American and has long-standing implications to the future of fintech, cash flow underwriting, buy now, pay later, and alternative data. Let's get started. Hi, Chi-Chi, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech podcast. We're very excited to have you on as a guest today. Thanks, Ryan. Glad to be here. So can you just start by telling us a little bit about yourself and maybe your path to your current role at the National Consumer Law Center? Sure. Happy to do that.
1: So as you might guess from the fact that it's the National Consumer Law Center, I am a lawyer. I started off in government. Uh, working for the Food and Drug Administration, then moved to Massachusetts, worked for legal services, and then the state attorney general. And from there, I went to National Consumer Law Center. National Consumer Law Center is a policy and advocacy nonprofit with a focus on low-income consumers. So we provide technical assistance, we provide trainings, and Probably for the legal community, we're best known for our series of legal manuals on various consumer law topics, anywhere from truth in lending to fair debt collection to my favorite legal manual, the Fair Credit Reporting Act. That's my specialty, fair credit reporting and both credit reporting and other types of consumer reporting, i.e. check systems and account screening, background check, tenant
0: screening. So let's jump into your specialty then. You know, the Fair Credit Reporting Act affects every last one of our listeners and of course helps govern the credit data oligopoly. So setting the stage, can you talk about the act from a high level and its stipulations? So the Fair Credit Reporting Act
1: governs both the credit bureaus. And I'm assuming a lot of your listeners are familiar with those: Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion, the three companies that hold all your credit data, generate credit reports, and provide the underlying information for credit scores. So the Fair Credit Reporting Act governs those. It also governs other types of what are called consumer reporting agencies, database companies that hold lots of information about consumers that are used for other purposes. So criminal ground check agencies that are used by employers and landlords, tenant screening agencies that are used by landlords, companies like check systems and early warning services that are used to decide whether a consumer can open a bank account. The Fair Credit Reporting Act is 50 years old. It celebrated a birthday in October 2020. And for a law that is half a century old, it's actually withstood the test of time fairly well. And that's because a lot of its provisions are based on broad principles of fair information practices. So under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, for example, a company that produces credit or consumer reports about a consumer has an obligation to make that information available to the consumer. So the right to access information about yourself. And most folks or a lot of folks would be familiar with that. And that's The right for a free annual credit report when you go to annualcreditreport.com. That's where it stems from the idea that you have a right to the information about yourself. There are requirements for accuracy standards. So, the Fair Credit Reporting Act requires consumer reporting agencies to follow reasonable procedures for maximum possible accuracy. And I'm stating the statutory standard because it's important to understand it's not strict liability. So, they are not required to have 100%. Accuracy, but they require to have procedures to try to reach maximum possible accuracy. So it's not just some accuracy or a decent amount of accuracy. It's maximum possible accuracy. Consumers have the right to dispute errors. So if you pull your own credit report or other type of consumer report and you see an error, you have the right to dispute it under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And the act requires the consumer reporting agency to conduct a reasonable investigation of the dispute. Other important aspects of the Fair Credit Reporting Act, you're entitled to a notice when information from a credit or consumer report is used against you, either to deny you something or when you're charged more for credit. And those are called adverse action notices and risk based pricing notices. The Fair Credit Reporting Act also limits the amount of time that negative information remains on a report, generally, seven years, 10 years for bankruptcy. The only exception is criminal convictions can stay on indefinitely.
0: And this governs not just the big three agencies, but also companies that handle this data, right?
1: So those are some of the key aspects. Um, The definitions of consumer reporting agency and consumer report are fairly broad, and they apply to things that companies, for example, often will offer information or database services thinking Oh, well, we're new tech. We're this shiny, new kind of company. Obviously, this ancient law doesn't apply to us. And then they're surprised to find out, yes, it does. If information, um, and it's a pretty broad definition, it's not just creditworthiness, but it's also things like personal characteristics and mode of living and character. So if information about these broad categories, Of information are used for certain purposes, credit, insurance, employment, government benefits, it's covered by the Fair Credit Reporting Act.
0: One of the things you mentioned is max possible accuracy. And so it begs the question that there, what can be going wrong here? And there must be some inaccuracies, as you mentioned. I looked into this industry beforehand and saw some of your previous conversations that you had and was shocked to learn that credit reporting can be inaccurate and the FTC said that twenty percent of credit reports can have a verified error, and five percent can have something so wrong that it would change a credit decision significantly. Why does this happen, and what are some of these errors that people might see?
1: So that's a great point, and the statistics you cite come from the FTC's study where it surveyed over a thousand consumers. It's really the definitive study on accuracy. And those statistics aren't really acceptable. I mean, I, you know, I have heard the argument, oh, well, that's 95% accurate. That's okay. And (laughs) not great. That's not okay. No, (laughs) That means 5% of consumers, one in 20 is subject to a life altering inaccuracy. And, you you know, the analogy I use is what if one of, out of 20 cars exploded spontaneously or one of 20 airplanes fell out of the sky. I mean, you remember the Boeing Max, the amount of controversy right. with you know a handful of plane crashes. If, if you imagine one in 20 of those planes crashed, what the outcry would be. So, this is not an acceptable level of accuracy. And some of the types of inaccuracy can be really horrifying. One of the worst is what's called a mixed file. And this is when information from one consumer gets mixed up with another consumer. And this happens because the credit bureaus use overly loose matching criteria. And what I mean by this is if you think about it, my name is Chi Chi Wu. It's a fairly unique name, but there's still probably one or two consumers in the country that have the same name. Mm -hmm. And then if you have a name like John Smith, you can imagine there are a lot of John Smith's out there. So obviously you can't match on name only. There are too many people with similar names. You need a unique identifier. Now with credit bureaus, that's an easy one. Social security number, that's the one unique identifier that every American has. But the problem is the credit bureaus will match information from a source, from a creditor or debt collector based only on seven out of nine digits of the social security number and they sometimes won't even match on full name. They'll match only on first name or on last name and partial first name. They won't do a full address match. They might do the same state or the same city and state. And so what happens is if you have two consumers with somewhat similar names and seven out of nine digits of their social security numbers matching, sometimes their information will get mixed together. And if one of those consumers has a bad credit record that can really hurt the other consumer. And we've seen some very notorious cases of this. In fact, there's some cases involving women with the name Judy Thomas, for some reason, they really get hit by this problem badly. And it just, you know, these women spent years, sometimes decades trying to fix this problem and get their credit report disentangled from someone else. It really hurts their ability to get credit, It can affect employment. It can affect the ability to get rental housing. So that's one of the worst kinds of problems. Other types of problems, I mentioned the fact that negative information is supposed to come off after seven years. We've definitely seen examples where information does not come off. And often that's when debt collection is involved. You know, if the credit account first became delinquent, you know, in 2011, but the debt collector got the account in 2015. Sometimes they will unlawfully use the uh. 2015 date, and that's called re-aging. Other types of problems are, you know, just things you might imagine that creditors or debt collectors do. Ta- you know, again, tagging the wrong consumer or reporting an account as unpaid and an unpaid collection when it's been paid or a late payment when the consumer said, I didn't pay late. Lots of different kinds of problems hmm.
0: that we see, got it. So two follow-ups here. The first one, so you mentioned there might not be full match. Sometimes these agencies use seven out of the nine social security numbers, et cetera, or just state to address. Why don't they go full match? It seems that this could be a fixable issue.
1: This certainly is a fixable issue. And we've advocated for fully matching social security numbers. Or at least much, much tighter matching criteria, eight out of nine or and full name and and full address. The reason that the credit bureaus do this is it's the incentives. It's the incentives that exist in the industry. First of all, if you think about it, the creditors we've always said for credit bureaus, the creditors and the users and the information are the customers, not consumers. And creditors would rather see more False positives and false negatives. So they're going to be false positives, they're going to be false negatives. If you're a creditor and you get a false negative, in other words, someone who has a negative item doesn't show up on their credit report, your perspective is, if that's a person's a bad risk and I loan the money, I'm at risk of losing the money I've loaned, mm-hmm. and, and that's a big risk. Whereas if there's a false positive, someone tagged with negative information that doesn't belong to them. Then they will miss maybe the business opportunity to make a profit, but they'd rather not lose the amount they've lent. So that's one reason. Another incentive is I think that the credit bureaus, you know, there are a lot of folks, and you probably ask about this later, who don't have a credit file or who have very thin files. And so the credit bureaus would rather deliver more information when they deliver a no hit. They would probably be concerned the creditor doesn't feel like it's getting its money's worth. So they would rather deliver more information. So it's about the incentives in the system. And the incentives, of course, stem from, and you've probably heard it, the sort of very odd and dysfunctional way the system is set up. Right. So if you think about it, it's often been said that The credit reporting industry is an oligopoly. You only have these three companies, Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. But it's worse than your regular oligopoly, where you might only have the pick of, I don't know, three cell phone companies or three streaming services, because at least you could pick between the three. You can't pick between the credit bureaus. You're captive. Consumers are captive. They can't walk with their feet. They can't say, I hate Equifax because they lost all my data back in 2017. You know, you want a mortgage, you want a car loan, you want a credit card, you deal with all three. And so credit viewers have very little incentive to be responsive to consumers. Instead, their customers are creditors and debt collectors and landlords and other users. And so that's why the incentives exist for them to implement certain procedures that I think don't lend themselves to maximum possible
0: accuracy. Right. So government intervention and regulation is really necessary since the private model's clearly not working. So what can be done and how might the administration change coming up affect this?
1: I mean, one thing about Dodd-Frank and the CFPB that was very hopeful back in 2011 is that Dodd-Frank gave the CFPB not only the authority to take enforcement action against the credit bureaus and other financial consumer reporting agencies, but the ability to supervise them as a bank regulator would supervise a bank. So to go in and review policies and procedures and say, hey, you need to fix this. In order to comply with the law. And so that model of supervision, we thought, would be much better than just enforcement actions where an agency is reactive um, when it takes an enforcement action. And supervision had been making some progress. And then, as I said, change in administration. So now we're going to see another change in administration. And the director designee, Rohit Chopra, we know has a very strong consumer protection background. So that could be promising. We could see some improvement there other promising changes. You know, what we'd ultimately like to see in legislation is this idea of a public credit registry. So here's where I talk about more about the dysfunctional nature of the system. And if you think about it, this is credit reporting serves a gatekeeper function to so many financial necessities, not just credit, but landlords use it. Employers use credit reports, insurance companies. If you have a negative credit history, it can hurt you in so many ways. And yet the three companies, the oligopoly that controls this information, they are not only private, they are for profit and publicly traded, which means their highest duty isn't to consumers, of course, not even to the creditors or the credit economy or the overall American economy. It is to shareholders. It is to make profit for shareholders. And that kind of doesn't make sense when this is a sort of information infrastructure. Infrastructure today is no longer roads and bridges. It's things like high-speed internet, and it's the data, the information that it has been said information or data is the new oil. So the idea that three publicly traded for-profit companies control this, it leads to some amount of dysfunction. And so the idea would be to make this a public function and therefore a public credit registry, which is something that President Biden, when he was campaigning, had put in his platform and something that we think is ultimately a very good idea. Now, we've heard a lot of pushback to it. You know, some folks have said, you know, oh my, well, the government controlling all this data is even scarier. But, you know, if you think about it, the government has a lot of data, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the IRS has a lot of data, Social Security has a lot of data. And so the way you deal with possible problems. At a government agencies, those government agencies are accountable to the public, to the voters. So there is an accountability to someone other than a private corporation. Other countries have some version of a public credit registry, and it has the potential to improve a lot of this because it won't have the same incentives that these
0: private for-profit corporations have. So some people are a little too impatient to wait for this change and have started taking matters into their own hands. What are your thoughts on alternative data and cash flow underwriting specifically?
1: Alternative data, the devils in the details. Some of those are riskier to consumers. Some of those are more promising. So in terms of the more promising, cash flow data has been one of the more promising forms. It's not without risk. You need some guardrails around the data which I'll talk about in a minute. Rent payment data has been also one of the more promising ones. Right now, it might not be because the pandemic has really hit renters a lot harder. Renters tend to be the folks on that downward slope of the K that everyone's talking about. 20 to 30% of renters are having trouble with paying the rent. So right now is probably a tough time, but before the pandemic, we would say it's promising and it might be promising in the future too. And as long as it's opt-in, even these issues can be dealt with. Less promising or more risky um, subprime credit. Subprime borrowers tend to actually not be thin file borrowers and subprime credit is often more harmful. Gas and electric utility data, we've said, is risky because of the unique nature of gas and electric utilities. They are natural monopolies. There is a lot of consumer protection and regulation at the state level, and we are concerned that using that kind of data, especially the way proponents have wanted to use it by dumping it into the main credit bureau files, could end up hurting more people than it actually helps. And that brings up another point, which is how you use alternative data is important. So if you just take the data and you dump it into the credit bureau files, that's probably riskier from consumers than using the data as a secondary or second chance or as a different source of data in a different database. And certainly, you're not going to have the benefit of competition if you just dump that information in the credit bureau files. All you're doing Mm -hmm. is giving the oligopoly more oil. Right. So, with cash flow data, you know, we do think it has the ability or the potential to provide competition to the credit bureaus. But we are concerned that, for example, the credit bureaus might start buying some of the companies that are providing the cash flow data. Certainly, the credit bureaus have been on a buying spree, they've bought other types of alternative data providers, subprime credit data. Based CRAs, for example, like Factor Trust and Clarity, have been purchased by the big three. So we are concerned that cash flow ends up ultimately in the hands of the big three. But it has been promising. You know, there's been some research showing that it may be more inclusive than traditional credit reporting credit scores. Now there needs to be strong guardrails because it's a rich source of data, and it could be abused too. It could be abused by creditors for use in debt collection. It could be abused in that creditors might not look at just the cash flow, i.e. the credits, the debits, and the balances, but they could actually look at, for example, where the consumer spends their money. Debit card merchant information is in bank account data, and we wouldn't want Creditors to look at, oh, this person spent money at a dollar store. They must be a bad risk. So there needs to be guardrails. We would like to see guardrails around consumer control because one of the biggest criticisms of the credit bureaus is that consumers have no control over their data. They have no control whether the information is provided to the credit bureaus. And they have no, until the advent of security phrases, they had no control whether the data was supplied to users. Right now, you can put a freeze on and prevent the data from being supplied to new creditors, but you still have no control of whether this information can be supplied to existing creditors for account review or for debt collection. Security freezes, I think, do apply to other uses like on a practical level to employers and landlords, but the law does not require that. So we would like to see consumers being able to control the use of cash flow data. And right now, there is some control in that consumers do provide consent for the use of that data. There's some question of how meaningful that consent is, whether the consumers realize it. We'd like to see stronger controls in that area and also controls over what data elements get shared
0: so that they don't have to share the names of merchants where they've purchased things. So one thing you mentioned earlier in this response was, of course, COVID, the effects it's having, and this K outcome that everybody's talked about that I think is so powerful. From a credit point of view, How are these people who have been so just beaten down by the economic devastation of the last year going to recover from a credit perspective if they're missing payments, taking on debt? And I don't think that there's been a moratorium. What advice do you have for any listeners that are in this position moving forward on how they can recover?
1: Yeah, no, that's an excellent question and an excellent point. We did try to advocate for moratorium on negative credit reporting during the pandemic.
0: And sorry, one quick would the moratorium come from a state level or would have to be federal?
1: Okay. So, we advocated for a federal moratorium on negative credit reporting during the pandemic, arguing that hey, this is A once in a lifetime, once in a century economic disruption. And anybody who can't pay their bills because they lost their job or they actually got COVID, it's no indication of how they repay credit, their worthiness as a borrower. It really is just a reflection of bad luck, whether that particular worker had the bad luck to be working in the restaurant industry versus the retail or online industry. There was some receptiveness, but also. There were folks in Congress who just blocked it on the Senate side. And in fact, it was Republican Senator from Pennsylvania who blocked it, according to some information we've heard. And it's probably at the behest of the credit industry and banks. They they obviously did not want to see a moratorium. I think it's foolhardy from... An economic perspective, if you have millions of folks who will be shut out of the credit system because of circumstances outside of their control. I mean, what it really this really illustrates, and I've said this even before the pandemic, is a lot of folks who've end up with negative credit histories, it's circumstances outside their control. It's job loss, it's illness, it's some, you know, it's divorce or something that happened to them. Mm-hmm. And we need a better way to judge creditworthiness. If you look at someone with, let's say, a 600 credit score, which is considered near prime or basically subprime, it doesn't make the prime cutoffs, that person still has an 80% chance of being a decent borrower, or at least they did pre-pandemic, right? So yes, that's a lower percentage than an 800, which may only have a 4% chance of defaulting. Mm -hmm. But still, you're leaving a lot of consumers who would be performing borrowers out or you're shutting them out or making them pay more. And so there's a lot of refinement that could be done. There is a lot that data scientists and technology might be able to do to have a more scalpel-like approach to figuring out who's credit worthy versus a hammer approach. And cash flow might be part of that. I mean, I don't think it's a panacea. I don't think it's a silver bullet. You're still going to have... For example, racial disparities, which is another topic I haven't <laughs> touched on yet. Right. But, it's a whole other episode. <laughs> yeah. But cash flow tends to focus more on the present circumstances and not so much on the past. And so in that way, it may be better than traditional credit reporting, depending on how creditors use it. But you know, there's a lot more focus of what's going on right now, inflows, outflows. And cash flow is better also because there's more of a sense of ability to repay one of the criticisms of underwriting just on credit score, which credit card companies used to do before 2009 and the Credit Card Act, is that credit scores don't measure ability to pay. That's measured by income, debt, expenses. And cash flow data has the ability to look
0: into that, to give a perspective or a view on that. Well, Chi Chi, this has been extremely informative. This has been awesome. Thank you for all of this insight. So you've entered the final round of the episode which is the rapid fire question round. We've okay. got about <laughs> We've got I know I didn't tell you about this coming up. You in. didn't. <laughs> so I have to leave a little bit to spontaneity. So I've got about 10 questions for mm-hmm. you. Max kind of like 10 second reply. Are you ready? Okay. All right, so first question. Favorite part of your role at the NCLC. Favorite
1: part of my role, um being truly mission driven. I mean people like to talk about being truly mission driven but I get to work every day to protect consumers, and that's super cool.
0: So we had a lot of kind of sad stories in this episode. Could we maybe get one feel-good story of your work from the last year? Oh, gosh. From the last year is just too tough. Maybe maybe you can go back to 2019.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it feels good when I get an inquiry from an attorney. I've got this client problem, and I'm able to say, Well, you know, look at this regulation or you know, think about this theory and it actually helps them. So that's always very cool.
0: Okay. Next one. Who is your personal role model?
1: Work-wise, I would say, well, I don't know if it's a role model or just like patron saint goddess would be Elizabeth Ward. That was the easy one. Yeah. (laughs) I don't Um, think I could ever aspire to be her, but
0: uh, so maybe this leads into the next question. Who is your dream guest to listen to on the Wharton FinTech podcast?
1: Elizabeth Warren?
0: (laughs) If you have the in, let me know. Miguel and I can can co-host that one. That would be fascinating and probably a little controversial for a school like Warren. All right. Next one. Toughest class at Harvard Law that you took?
1: Well, I took a class on artificial intelligence and the law. And I must say, it made my head spin. AI (laughs) still makes my head spin 30 years later. So I don't know if it's one of my toughest class, but I know, you know, I had to grapple with a lot there.
0: Yeah. I'm surprised that they had an AI class 30 years ago.
1: Yeah. yeah I'd have to dig back. I'm pretty sure I took one. I remember the professor was a woman. She was an adjunct or teaching at another school.
0: Yeah. Great. And then final question. Let's say, you know, the whole world is vaccinated. COVID is a distant memory. What is the first kind of big blowout vacation you and your family go on once all the dust settles?
1: So I'm hoping that's not like a dream question and that would actually (laughs) (laughs) happen. So in in six months, right? Yeah, six (laughs) or nine months. So I have a very international family. My brother and his family live in Shanghai. My sister lives in Switzerland and we like to get together every June for a family vacation. We weren't able to do that in 2020. So I am hoping we're able to do that in 2021. The location doesn't matter so much. It's just being able to get together. But, you know, some of our favorite places are Singapore or, you know, visiting my sister in Switzerland, visiting my brother in Shanghai, Bali, Hokkaido. I don't know, anywhere.
0: So international. My God, (laughs) tough life.
1: I racked up a lot of miles before the (laughs) pandemic, and it has been very odd not to get
0: on an airplane for a year. I agree. It is so bizarre. I just have an unbelievable number of points sitting ready to go <laughs> at first moment's notice. Yeah. Well, yeah, Chi
1: Chi. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I want to thank you for coming on today's episode of the Wharton FinTech podcast. This was fantastic, extremely educational, and extremely relevant, and going to be more relevant over the coming years as I think the credit ramifications of COVID are only starting to rear their heads. So, thank you again for coming on. It was wonderful to have you.
1: Thank you so much for having me on, really appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review. And if you're looking for more FinTech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton FinTech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I've linked our accounts in the episode description. I would also like to thank our editor, Rafael Ostria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zouk.